This is Positive Parenting. Parenting expertise and advice from best-selling parenting author and national newspaper columnist, Mr. Dad, Armin Brott. Hey there, welcome to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. Families, as anybody who's had one or listened to the show knows, have a variety of challenges that they face. But military families in particular have even bigger challenges, among those being things like time spent away from the family, whether that's training or deployment or just orders that you get that send you all over the place and with, with little or no notice, military spouse employment, military pay and benefits, child education for kids in the military who are uprooted from their schools every couple of years and taken to a different country or a different state, and the impact of deployment on those children. And let's not forget about the many special needs associated with families with a wounded service member. Fortunately, there are a lot of organizations that help families deal with these and many other military-specific issues. And in this part of today's show, we're going to be talking with two of those terrific organizations. One of them is Blue Star Families, and the other is the Wounded Warrior Project. Support for our show today comes from Navy Federal Credit Union, which is proud to serve the Armed Forces veterans and their families. And if you're a member of the Armed Forces or Department of Defense, they'd be proud to serve you too. Federally insured by NCUA. Blue Star families are up first, and then we'll follow that up with a segment from the Wounded Warrior Project. We'll jump into all of that, though, right after this short break. Hands can do incredible things. This is the sound of two hands helping to save a life. It's called hands-only CPR, and it's recommended by the American Heart Association. If an adult suddenly collapses, call 911, then push hard and fast in the center of their chest until help arrives. Hands can do incredible things, but nothing compares to using them to help save a life. For more information on this latest method of CPR, visit handsonlycpr.org today. A message from the American Heart Association and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brant. My guest for this part of today's show is Kathy Roth Duque, who's the CEO of Blue Star Families. And their website, before I forget this, is bluestarfam.org. Kathy, thanks for joining us. It's great to be with you. Tell us a little bit of an overview of what Blue Star Families does and is all about. Blue Star Families is a nonprofit that exists to make life better for military families, connect neighbors in the communities where they live to these military families so they can better support them and help policymakers and other national leaders understand us better so they can create the atmosphere under which we can thrive and support the country. Well, that's pretty great. So tell us a little bit about some of the, the specific issues that military families are facing or or going through that the rest of the world just doesn't understand? Sure. Because uh, our military has evolved as its own kind of cul-de-sac community, we call it. We, So many of the people who serve in the military come from military families, from military-focused communities. The rest of the country often just doesn't know who we are, what we do, um, and how we need our help. Um, so we find that really people... Uh, in most of the country don't recognize that most people in the military do have families. Uh, nearly 70% have families. 
another large number of majority have children, and those aren't always the same people because we have single-parent military. Folks don't realize we don't all live on base anymore. Most Americans think that military people live on base, all their needs are taken care of on base, and, and that's the end of it. Uh, but we're not. Most of us are, 70% of us live in the community, 70% of families do once you're not a you know, single junior service member. Um, and we need two incomes, just like other American families. We're working class and middle class, and Americans in the 21st century need two incomes. It's extremely difficult for military families to have household income parity with their neighbors, and that gives us an economic um, level of economic insecurity that, that people just don't know is something that we're struggling with at, at the same time that we're trying to meet the national security mission. Yeah, and at the same time, quite often these families are living in, in communities where there are not a lot, of, a lot of other military people around. And again, as, as you said, and as the organization is set up, they're, they're not aware of these issues. So it's educating right, and that really compounds. That's right, and it really compounds things for us because everyone has problems. And I always say to folks, imagine you have an emergency in the place where you live today. How many people can you call? And most people are going to solve their problems for the people they know. But if you're new to a community, uh, in our survey, three-quarters of the folks were less than two years in the place where they were living. They often don't have anyone they can call. And then emergencies just get much worse. So um, yeah. we need people to feel like – to be welcomed and to be um, integrated into their communities uh, right. for us to have a healthy lifestyle. Well, yeah. I think just to, to give people a little bit of a sense, I think it was back in, in World War II or so – more than, I, I'm not 100% sure of these statistics, but I'm sure it's at least 20% of the population had some sort of a connection to the military. And so pretty yeah. much everybody knew somebody or was or had a family member in the military. And now it's 1% or 2%. So it's right. entirely possible that you live in a city and you don't know anybody who's who's been in the military or there isn't anybody. That's right. And because 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 of the way American society has gone, too, you could have someone on your block who's in the military and not even realize it. Right. Exactly. And, it, I mean, yeah. I, I deal with this issue with, with kids who are, are in reserve and guard families who the teachers don't understand it, that the kids are going through a deployment and uh, the issues that they, they might be facing. Do you deal uh, or work with families who are in guard and reserve, or is it only active families? No, we sure do. We're active duty guard and reserve, and we also include wounded and transitioning service members and their families. You know, it's, it's, the guard and reserve is particularly important because it's not yesterday's guard and reserve. It's not just, you know, drilling um, on the weekend and two weeks a year. We have a really active guard and reserve, both. And because um, it used to be you drilled right near your home, but now people are often driving across state. Uh, you know, a four-hour drive or a six-hour drive, depending on the size of the state, to do their drilling. So that, that further, you know, separates you from your community, and community members don't know you're doing it. You don't have a unit together. So that mission of ours to create that integration in that community is is more part, important for the Guard and Reserve than ever before, I think. Okay. And when you're talking with, with military families, what do they want their neighbors to know? I think one thing they want their neighbors to know is that they're they're Americans just like them. They're just the same. The problems we have, the you know wishes we want for our families. We're not we're not zebras. We're not a different species. Um, but our challenges are compounded by the fact that we have to move on government orders. Um, 
we want to do the mission, but it, it requires it requires that help. So um, knowing that someone might be uh, deployed or gone a lot on training, and so being part of a support system um, on short order, knowing that childcare is really hard for us because we're always at the bottom of waiting lists, um, and uh, knowing that we're struggling with often one income or a super reduced second income, uh, so that military spouses helping them find jobs, helping them find work, helping us with child care, all those kinds of things are incredibly meaningful to supporting the military. Okay. And uh, you do a survey every year for a military family yeah. lifestyle survey. And you want I know that you want to encourage people right now, and I'm hoping that everybody who's listening here will, will write down the, the website where they can take advantage of this survey. And then I want to talk about the 2017 results too. But how do, how do people get to be able to understand or to be able to participate in, in uh, this year's survey? Yeah, it's so important for military-connected people to take our survey because it gets paid attention to. We release it in Congress. Um, I personally briefed the last um, five secretaries of defense, actually, um, on the survey. Uh, the military services use it, and other nonprofits use it. The Congress uses it to understand what's going on. So we need people who are connected to the military to take it active duty, Guard and Reserve members, we want them to take it, military spouses, also veterans and veteran spouses, as we compare all of these notes. Hmm. You can come to our website, bluestarfam.org. Um, I hope you take it, because um, it's, it's good to know what how people see things differently um, than f- who served in previous times versus those who are serving currently. Um, and that's where we get our data from, from, from what um, folks tell us on that survey. Um, and... Uh, it's it's a way to really get your voice heard. Do the results change very much from year to year, or are the are the issues that are the top five issues pretty much the same as they've always been? We've seen them change, and one reason they change is because of outside events. But another reason they change is we give everyone an opportunity to give some open-ended responses. And sometimes when we hear a lot from people about a topic that's not in the survey, then we'll give a different We'll, we'll give new options of things for people to say in future future surveys. So we we expanded over time. The biggest thing we've seen change is that the concern about the amount of time away from family has skyrocketed to not being a top five concern to being the number one concern for both service members and their spouses. Um, and the, that's an eye opener for folks. That time away from families. Yeah, because, because of deployment, seeing, right? deployment, training, but also really short fuse orders. So sometimes if you have a super short fuse PCS or very, um, uh, then families end up being separated where they otherwise could have organized their 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 lives so that they could all go together. Um, uh, and th- these trainings and in- individual augmentations and, and um, other things that are maybe not officially called deployments but still create family separation, um, they've really been increasing uh, as well. Um, the Army is more like the Marine Corps now in how expeditionary it is. Uh, you used to do an entire career in the Army and never deploy away from your family. If you joined in 74, you'd leave in 94 and never have deployed away from your family. We don't have four deployed bases anymore or four deployed um, installations. Um, so uh, a lot of times there's a level of separation that we've never experienced in the standing Army. 
And just to round that out, so the top five from 2017 were time away from family, then military spouse employment, and we're going to have some folks on from a couple of organizations talking about that specific topic later, uh, military pay and benefits, military child education, and the impact of deployment on those children. So those are, are really, really big issues. And hopefully uh, all of all of us who are participating in the show and also listening on the other end will participate in the Military Family Lifestyle Survey. And again, uh, that is bluestarfam.org, right? Bluestarfam.org. Okay. Or you could just Google Blue Star Families and it'll come to us. Okay. Kathy Roth Duque, the CEO of Blue Star Families, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you very much. Check it out, it's the Terminator. Hey, when'd you get back, huh? Did you have to shoot anyone? Why are you so distant? Are you not happy to see me? So what's the deal? You gonna get a job now or what? Why are you being so jumpy? Put all that stuff behind you, okay? No one knows what it's like to come back from Iraq or Afghanistan unless they were there. Join other veterans at communityofveterans.org because we know where you're coming from. Brought to you by Iraq and Afghanistan Veterans of America and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and my guest for this part of today's show is Dan Nevins, who's a spokesperson with the Wounded Warrior Project. And uh, welcome to the show, Dan. Nice to have you. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Well, why don't we start off with you telling a little bit about what the Wounded Warrior Project does. I mean, it's from the name, it sounds rather self-explanatory, but you guys have a, an awful lot of programs going on. Oh, absolutely. So... The main thing, well, the mission is simple. It's to honor and empower wounded warriors. And the way they do that is by connecting, serving, and empowering wounded warriors and their families through many different programs. Actually, over a dozen programs that heal the body, heal the mind, encourage economic empowerment, and um, and connecting with each other. You know, as a wounded warrior myself, like I spent two years at the hospital, and it was Wounded Warrior Project that met me at my hospital bedside with a backpack and a promise, really. That whatever I needed, or whatever my family needed, that they'd be there for me. And this is almost 14 years ago now. And and back then, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know what, you know, what that looked like. I didn't know what my future was going to be like. The Wounded Warrior Project was there every step of the way. And um, most importantly for me, just connecting me with other wounded warriors, you know, with similar disabilities, other families in similar situations. Like you know, all of us trying to figure this out together. The Wounded Warrior Project really became that that front porch that where we could gather and talk and, and meet each other. So like we got connected with other warriors, other families, and connected with our families once we returned home. I mean, a lot of us, while we're at the hospital, it's it's a lonely time. Right. And is, uh, try to reintegrate. Yeah, is the organization, Dan, is the organization working only with people who have been separated from the military, or, or are you still, are you working with them while they're still in? Well, it's, it's really for, for all post-9-11 veterans. There are some situations where we will work with wounded warriors who are still active duty that qualify for some of the programs and services we offer, especially as we're about to transition, whether they be in the warrior transition units or about to make their way from military to civilian life. I mean, that's really where Wounded Warrior Project shines is in that integration coming home. Um, you're leaving the service and coming back um, to you know, civilian life. Okay. 
and I'm imagining just from looking at the at the website and what I've heard that it's not only physical wounds it can be uh, emotional and mental health issues as well oh absolutely yeah that's um you know it's sort of the hallmark wound of this of this generation of warriors and it's really unfortunate to say because it's most people think of wounds as something you can see. But I'll tell you, I lost both legs below the knee, and I live with a traumatic brain injury. And, yeah, when I wear shorts, you can totally see. But it's the wounds that you don't see yeah. are the ones I struggled with for, for like, a decade plus. And, um, you know, physically, you know, like I can show cutting horses, I can run, I can do everything. But it was the ones where I was alone at night and no one was around that I actually suffered with the most. And Wounded Warrior Project is really leading the way in helping those warriors, the warriors who typically don't feel like, oh, well, you know, I don't qualify as a wounded warrior because I wasn't physically wounded. Right. And I say to those people, like, no, 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 we know exactly who these programs are for. It's for all of us, all of us that bear the wounds that you see and the wounds that you don't. You know, it's so, sad that um, 22 veterans a day take their own life. Yeah. And that number's yeah. too high. Well, any any number is too high, yeah. So what what types of services are available or programs are available for somebody who is a wounded warrior? And, I mean, it sounds like just to connect them with other folks who are in the same situation, it sounds like that did wonders for you and and is very successful for other people. But are, are you talking about financial assistance or helping to retrofit the house that can accommodate a wheelchair or... Uh, access to civilian resources and VA, re- how to navigate the VA system. I mean, what what kinds of things are you are you offering? Well, that's that's the best part. Is it? so like Wounded Warrior Project has a very robust alumni program, and through that program, being connected to other warriors and families, it's sort of like the first step where you triage the needs of the warrior and their family because everybody is different, right? So we the Wounded Warrior Project offers so many different programs that help you know in mental health. And they do do some emergency financial assistance. However, the, the, one of the best things that, that the Wounded Warrior Project has is their resource center. That is this one-stop shop where somebody can get on the phone, come in person, get online, and find all of the resources available for them, whether that's through the VA system. And the Wounded Warrior Project has the best VA benefits counselors, that I believe, on the planet that can help them navigate that, that road, which is pretty treacherous at times. And then connect them to all the different resources available, whether they're internal to the Warrior Project or external to, to hundreds of other organizations that serve this generation of warriors and their families. So it's um it's really it's really the first place to go. And I tell Wounded Warriors every time I see them, if they're not enrolled, if they're not an alumni of the Warrior Project, that they really need to be. Yeah. Because it costs absolutely nothing. Every every single bit of Wounded Warrior Project's programs and services are free for the warriors and their families because they believe that their dues were paid on the battlefield. There's no cost to be a member. It's not a member organization. It's an organization of warriors helping and healing other wounded warriors, and that's um, that's powerful in and of itself. Yeah. And so then you take that and add the best-in-class programs and services and the ability to reach out and connect basically almost every organization that turns the healing and warriors and families. It's pretty incredible. Now, Dan, you mentioned a couple times families, and -hmm. and it sounds like a lot of the services, particularly the the physical health, the mental health, that type of thing, are 
are for the veterans themselves, but right. there's also a lot of other stuff that goes on. I mean, how do you care as a family member? How do you care for somebody as a as a child? I mean, I can imagine is there is there a need for workshops or groups for kids about how you need to be with dad or mom now that it's that things have changed. It's a little different. Absolutely. And Wounded Warrior Project, we really see like the the warrior isn't fighting this battle alone. There's always a support system or a family close by. And if there's not, which in in rare cases there, there's not. In that case, Wounded Warrior Project sort of becomes like the family, like the, the alumni team and the benefits counselors will like really hold them close to make sure that their hand is held and walk through the process. But outside of those rare instances, I mean, we realize that there's a whole network and support system of people caring for their warriors. And so when the Warrior Project has programs um, available that, that helps with that, everything from, you know, the, 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 all the caregiver programs that they offer. They even do um, Project Odyssey, which is a combat stress recovery program that when the Warrior Project has. They even do couples odysseys. Will they give a chance for these these couples to heal together? And uh, it's, it's absolutely beautiful, the results of these programs. And um, like the the entry level, like what the, the baseline is for when warriors kind of check into these programs or, or start to when they leave. I mean, it's like night and day. Yeah, sounds like it. Mm-hmm. I mean, are they, are they marital retreats or just couple retreats or what, mm-hmm. what kind of a thing is it? That's the whole thing. It's like the... The family dynamic is is so different now. People, you know, a long time ago they used to say, "Oh, well, married is just what married is." Well, now we realize that it's not always married. Like their their primary caregiver could be a girlfriend, a boyfriend, you know, uh, you know, sister, brother. It doesn't really, um, like, we don't really distinguish what what their caregiver, what a couple is. Okay. Okay. It's just that, yeah, like this is this is your person. Where's the money coming from to provide all this? Is it all donations, or have you, there, are there corporate funders, or how does it how does that part work? Well, it's um, as of right now, we don't take any money from the United States government or any government entity at all. So it's all 100% publicly funded, and it comes through a bunch of different channels through corporate donations and partners that you know write very large checks and support programs and services. But still, the lion's share of support comes from individuals from concerned citizens, people who want to make a difference in this generation of warriors and families' lives that write the smaller checks, you know, checks of 100 bucks, 200 bucks, or more or less, you know, whatever they can write. Those are the people. It's the people listening to your show. It's the people that are out there responding when they see, you know, something on television like that. That is what really keeps the Warrior Project moving. And that's what, what for me, as a, as a warrior, um, as a veteran, as as an alumni of the Warrior Project, and also a donor myself, um, that's what inspires me is to know that, you know, hundreds of thousands of people all around the country are writing those donations, whether it's every month or every couple months or it's just one at a time. Like, that's what is keeping the Warrior Project moving forward, and that's what's keeping the warriors who are still in the hospitals today with their families, the ones still returning from Iraq and Afghanistan right now that people don't see on the news yeah. and that are, that are being eligible for all the programs and services and support that Wonder Warrior Project gives. 
Dan Nevins is a spokesperson for the Wounded Warrior Project, a very eloquent spokesperson, by the way. I mean, you're making a tremendous case. And the website for those of uh, you'd like to, if you are in need of services or you'd like to just volunteer or donate, it's woundedwarriorproject.org. And uh, Dan, thanks again so much. Thank you so much. Maria Inez Phillips talks about not recycling. I've got too many newspapers and magazines and catalogs in there with plastic containers and bottles and cans. Your trash can is full of recyclables? No, it's full of trash. You say trash, Maria. I say rubbish. Whatever it is, I'm not going through it. I I just don't get it. Some things are very obvious, Maria. Learn the difference between trash and recycling and more. I put out way too much trash to think about recycling. Visit yougottobekidding.org today. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott, and it's time for a Parents at Play segment, and I want to continue what we started a few weeks ago about how to avoid the summer slide. We all know that over the summer, kids lose on average 30% of what they learned the previous school year. Keeping their minds active and engaged while they're on vacation will help them start the new school year ready to learn instead of having to spend the first few months of the year reviewing old materials. Here are some great activities, one that's academic and the rest a little less so, that will keep your children's minds sharp. The Beautiful Book of Exquisite Corpses by Gavin Edwards. With all the emphasis on science, technology, engineering, and math these days, people forget about the A for art in STEAM, which we prefer over the more traditional STEM. This book is designed to jumpstart those creative, artistic juices, and it delivers big time. Each page is divided into thirds. The top third has a partial drawing or a provocative phrase. For example, he pushed the truck's accelerator down as far as it would go, but the angry kittens kept gaining on him. You and a partner then tear a few pages out of the book, fold them along the dotted lines so you can't see the drawing or the text, and then you shuffle them so you don't know which one you're getting, and then draw whatever you like. When you're done, fold the page again so neither of you can see what the other has done, swap those pages, and draw again. The result will be a wonderful artistic chimera. That's the mythical beast that had the head of a lion, body of a goat, and tail of a serpent. The book features art from famous illustrators, cartoonists, tattoo artists, and more, as well as text from just as famous rock stars, actors, TV writers, and others. It's for ages 10 and up. Costs about 17 bucks. You can get it on Amazon. Hoax Island, a fiendish puzzle adventure by Helen Friel and Ian Friel. Written and designed by a father-daughter team, this book is an escape-the-room type mystery in which you follow clues, decipher codes, solve puzzles, and analyze notes. The goal is to find Henry Hoax, who's gone missing, and save the marvelous amusement park that bears his name and happens to be filled with a variety of talking animals, including Rita the Anteater and Granville the Gorilla. And you want to keep that amusement park from being destroyed by dastardly developers. It's smart, challenging, thought-provoking, collaborative, and most of all, lots of fun. It's for ages 7 and up, costs about 20 bucks. You can get that on Amazon. Summer Brain Quest from Workman Publishing. This series of well-designed, educational, and engaging books will keep kids entertained all summer long. 
Each of the 15 volumes is filled with activities, games, and clever ways of reviewing concepts, introducing new ones, and just having fun, which, after all, is what's going to keep those kids coming back for more, right? What's especially nice about these books is that they're clearly labeled as being for adventures between grades X and Y, whatever they are. So you don't have to worry about whether a book that says first grade is for kids who just finished that grade or are starting it. Under $12 each, you can get them on Amazon. The Genius Kit from Osmo. Parents often complain that their kids spend too much time in front of screens. While that's definitely a valid concern, the reality is that screens aren't going anywhere, so we need to figure out how to take advantage of the amazing learning opportunities they offer without going overboard. The good news is that Osmo has figured out the perfect way to blend the best of on-screen education with engaging, hands-on object manipulation activities that can only be done off-screen. Osmo turns your iPad into a learning laboratory with five preloaded games that stimulate visual thinking, problem-solving, creative thinking, art, reading and spelling, and math. Your kids will love it, and so will you. It's for iPad, including the Mini, only. In other words, not for those of us who use Android, unfortunately. The iPad, of course, is not included. It's for ages 5 to 12, costs about 95 bucks, and you can get it at osmo.com slash en. You can get a lot more reviews of toys and games and activities and other fantastic things to do with your kids to have all sorts of fun, whether it's for the summer or beyond, at our website, parentsatplay.com. We'll be back next week with another brand new show for you. Hey, but don't go quite yet because there's a lot more of this show coming right up. More with Mr. Dad, Armin Brat, after this, from the MrDad.com radio network. Careful at the party, hon. Remember what we talked about? I know, Mom. No alcohol, right? Yeah, I know. Honey, seriously, I know you're in high school now, but you're still too young to drink, and you're still my daughter. I don't want anything happening to you. I know. I know. Really? Drinking is different with kids. You're still growing. You're still developing. It messes with your judgment. I know. Teenagers know everything. So talk about underage drinking before they know it all, before they're teens. And you could do things that, honey, trust me, if you drink, you could do things you don't really want to do that I don't want you to do. Yeah, Mom, I know. Listen, I'm just trying to protect you, all right? If you're a grown woman, it's different, but you're not. I know, okay? I know. Start talking before they start drinking, and keep talking. To learn more about the dangers of underage drinking and what to say to your kids, go to StopAlcoholAbuse.gov. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Now, get ready for more positive parenting with Armin Brott from the MrDad.com radio network. Hey there, welcome to the second part of today's Positive Parenting Show. I'm Armin Brott, the founder of MrDad.com. When we think of symbols of American modernity, we might think of the mechanized automobile, new techniques in food preservation, and explosive advances in medical research. Those are just a few things that come to mind. But historian Janet Golden thinks a little differently. She says that babies were what pushed us into the modern age. How's that? 
Well, it starts because babies push their families and the government to accommodate their needs and to change their practices. Let me give you an example. Recognition of cod liver oil as a preventative for the disease rickets led government agencies to start giving it away. Parents of limited means could buy it, and cod liver oil producers were able to advertise it widely. That understanding of a new biomedical idea that rickets and perhaps other ailments could be prevented spurred both health consumerism and the belief that government agencies should provide help in the form of information and funding for direct services. Those were ideas that didn't exist before we really started thinking about babies in different ways. But besides clearing the path for broad acceptance of new approaches to scientific research, babies also made us think more about gender roles, social work, developmental psychology, and a lot more. I'm Armin Brat. We'll start talking about how babies have made us modern when positive parenting continues right after this. Ever notice when you have a baby, everyone seems to give you advice? From your mother-in-law, to your own parents, to your friends. But when it comes to the important stuff, like immunizations and protecting my baby's health, I trust my baby's doctor. She really listens to my questions about shots, gives me great information, and she works with me to make sure my baby gets protected. And that's something even my mother-in-law can agree with. A message from the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. I'm Armin Brott. My guest for this part of today's show is Janet Golden, who's the author of Babies Made Us Modern, How Infants Brought America into the 20th Century. Janet, thanks very much. Thank you. There is an intriguing title for you, How Infants Brought Us into the 20th Century. You could say, well, infants brought us into the 19th century and the 12th century and the 10th century B.C. How How is the 21st century or the 20th century different than previous influences of, of infants on us? Well, I think the 20th century is different for several reasons. One is that's the century where we really saw a dramatic decline in infant mortality. It began in the middle of the 19th century, but it really dropped in the 20th, along with the birth rate. So there were a lot of infants, but fewer than their, the birth rate was lower, so there were fewer of them being born. And babies really connected what I would call ordinary Americans to all sorts of new things in the 20th century, consumer culture, uh, the ideas that come out of infant development and psychology. Um, and they also uh, kept their family rooted in, in older traditions as these new things came along and as modernization came along. So they're really instrumental historical actors and we don't pay attention to them in that way. We tend to count them. Uh, we tend to try and help them survive and be healthy. But we don't think about how they're changing our lives, except as individual parents and relatives. Do you think that some of it is the just the way that we started treating them differently? I mean, I think you know our, our grandparents, the babies, were not really treated with any specialness except for the, you know, we knew that they were fragile, but they were treated much more like little people as opposed to later on in perhaps the 20th century you're talking about when we discovered that they were actually not like little people. They were just very different and that there's a lot of different things that you need to do. I don't know that we treated them like little people, but little we didn't try... We didn't try as much, I think, to figure out 
how they were developing uh, in ways that we couldn't know about yet, you know, how they were responding to language, how they were responding to maybe structured days or sleep or things like that. We just didn't think about that as much because we were focused on can we help them to survive. Uh, but in the 20th century, we really begin to sort of look at them with new eyes and say, gee, they're, they're, they're following us with their eyes or they're crawling towards us or they like to be hugged or they like to be rocked. Um, but I will say that one of the interesting things that I found in my research is that when sociologists, anthropologists, folklorists would go out into rural communities, they would always kind of uh, see that that what we'll call more traditional families were always carrying their babies around, uh, nursing them a lot longer, let, you know, being more, I guess we would say, protective and loving than parents who were being taught by some of the new ideas to, you know, put their babies on rigid schedules. And there used to be uh, people used to have, give babies these bibs that said, do not kiss me because they were so afraid of germs. So I think a lot of traditional families uh, really uh, did what we would call now modern parenting, but never got credit for it because at the time they were seen as backward. So that's, mm. I find that really interesting. It's hard to imagine a time when parents were told, don't kiss your baby, it'll give them germs, make sure they get a healthy tan, they should always be allowed to cry because that will develop their lungs. And uh, I don't think we follow too much of that anymore. No, we certainly don't. And, and that sounds like it was science driving things in a, a way that we find out much later, similarly to, to the, the science that was telling women they shouldn't breastfeed or the science that was telling people that, like, like my mother, that they had to be knocked out before childbirth and uh, what was it, twilight sleep is what it was called, I think. Um, right. That, that, you know, so that science heading in what it thought was a good, well-intentioned direction that turns out not to have been. That's true. And and all of those things that I mentioned do have some science behind them. In other words, the biggest killer of the 19th century was tuberculosis. So if you thought a baby crying could develop its lungs and maybe prevent it later on from having a dread disease, that yeah. made sense. Yeah. People were afraid of rickets, so getting a healthy tan seemed like a, a sensible way to prevent that. Yeah, it's no. I, I mean, it's one of these things you can look back and you can say, "Oh, these idiots," but <laughs> it was it was well intentioned. I think. I mean, very very little of it was was not well intentioned. But you know, now we know that the, perhaps a better way for an infant to build up an immune system is to be exposed to things, and there's a lot of information now that's coming out about the antibacterial soaps and things like that and how those are actually hurting and how animal people who spend or babies who spend time with animals are, are less likely to be allergic and all, all sorts of stuff and that that's uh you, know, you learn right. later on and you say wow that's a whole different way of looking at the world yeah well ba you know we we spend a lot of time rightfully trying to protect our babies from deadly bacteria and deadly germs and it took a long time to realize that they're not all dangerous or bad for us. Uh, I will say in, the, in, in decades ago, of course, when more people grew up around animals, you get I read, read a lot of baby books to write this book, and babies were out there crawling around with the dogs and the chickens and got exposed to a lot of things that probably in the long run were good for them. Yeah, 
Exactly. And and that there were finding that, yeah, that was right. Exactly what you said about the more traditional parents. The, the kids who grew up on farms were healthier than kids who grew up without them. So you talk in the book about economics and social wel- welfare and the value of babies. Talk about that a little bit. Where, where are you going with that idea? Well, um, I think that we had an interesting time in America beginning uh, just before World War I where we really had federal government investment in infants and children with the Children's Bureau. We really said if we invest in our children, we're creating our, our future soldiers, our future mothers, our future healthy citizens. And that was an idea that people really embraced. I think I mentioned in the book that the Children's Bureau got about a quarter million letters every year asking for advice about how to raise children. People wow. looked to Uncle Sam for really good advice. Um, and that, that was an idea that faded away for a lot of reasons. One is, as the infant mortality rate fell, we worried a lot less. And secondly, I would say after World War II, we kind of turned to a privatized parenting where we didn't want too many experts or the government telling us what to do. Um, but we really had a real social investment in children. In the midst of World War One, uh, a part of the War Department, as it was then called, and all these nationwide women's organizations got together and had a children's year, 1918, save 100,000 babies was their motto. And they were measuring and weighing kids and going into schools and giving out pamphlets and healthy information. And then, again, for a time in the 20s, um, the Children's Bureau was funding a lot of programs in, under Shepherd Towner Act to uh, provide rural communities, cities with um, baby health stations, baby welfare stations, uh, so we could check in on kids and see who needed to be referred to the doctor. So people didn't have a big fear of government in interfering with uh, children or child raising. They really embraced it. Do you think that there's a role for government to play now? Well, I think, to, you know, I did not look in the book at the modern period, but I think that, yes, there is insofar as public health uh, has to be a big government project as well as a state and local project. But we do, we do want to have ways of combating epidemics, ways of responding to disasters that lead to health problems. So, yes, I think that there is a role for government right there, just as one example I don't know that people want to get advice pamphlets from the government or advice from the government the way they once did, um, but I don't think that they mind having government-funded community health centers in their communities where they can take their kids for inoculations as they get ready for school or if they have a, a health crisis, something like that. So times have changed, certainly. I don't think we want uh, the same kind of um, support from the Children's Bureau that we once had. But I think that there's still a role for government at different levels, certainly in in, uh, protecting the public's health, and that does mean infant health. Talking with Janet Golden, who's the author of Babies Made Us Modern, How Infants Brought America into the 20th Century. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll keep talking to Janet Golden about babies and modernity and the 20th century. I'm Armin Brock. You're listening to Positive Parenting. 
You must be your fairy godmother. <laughs> yes. It doesn't take a fairy godmother to tell you that the right fit means everything. Good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Children under four foot nine need to be in a booster seat because they aren't ready for adult safety belts alone. Remember that four foot nine is the magic number and get your little pumpkin there safely in a booster seat. Oh, thank you. For more information, visit boosterseat.gov. This has been a message from the U.S. Department of Transportation and the Ad Council. Welcome back to Positive Parenting. If you're just joining us, talking with Janet Golden, who's the author of Babies Made Us Modern, How Infants Brought America into the 20th Century. I want to talk about a, a little bit the, I guess, well, you mentioned about birth rates and also life expectancy. And talk about some of the statistics, because I think that it would be rather jarring to people who are, are younger to think back to a time when the, the adult lifespan was in the 40s and when a large number, I mean, a, a scary large number of children were, were dying under the age of five years old uh, compared to what we have now. That is right. Uh, we had a very high infant mortality rate. We had a very high young child mortality rate. So I begin my book in uh, Omaha, Nebraska, where they, we had the Trans-Mississippi Exposition, a kind of World's Fair, in 1898. And uh, in 1910, a little after that, uh, the infant mortality rate in Omaha was 140 per 1,000. Oh, my goodness. So that's, that's an incredible death rate. Now, I will say that, of course, has fallen tremendously. There are racial differences in the death rate. But one thing that persists from then till now is so many of our infant deaths are in the first month of life, that perinatal period. Right. And so many infant deaths are related then as now to prematurity. So that's a problem where we do want our scientists and our community health experts really trying to attack that problem because that, that has remained a serious yeah. one here and around the world. Well, you know, that's an area right there where government has a role to play, I think. Uh, I mean, I, I'm, I've written quite a bit about this in the, the books that I've done for, for dads about just changing sleeping positions when they change the recommendations. And I remember this, my, my older kids were born in the era when you put babies down to sleep on their face. Right. And, and now the, the youngest one was born in an era where you put them down on their back. And there's no question. I mean, the, the, the rate of, of sudden infant death syndrome, SIDS, one of the biggest killers of kids in the early early months, went down by half. And, you know, for the government to get the word out through hospitals or doctors or however else they do that, through public affairs or public uh, service announcements, to let people know that's where the science comes in and, and you got to pay attention to this stuff. And that's been great. I know that you've talked about text for baby, where the government will send you little texts a couple times a week when you're pregnant and then have a yeah, new baby. Exactly. Just simple advice. And that's really getting us back to uh, maybe where we were at the beginning of the 20th century, where the government put out, we call it Uncle Sam's bestseller, a book called Infant Care, first published in 1914. It's the, the biggest selling, biggest distributed uh, government publication of all time. It's online really? now. Wow. It does get updated. 
millions and millions sold and mil- well actually not sold but Probably sent away. away and then yeah. whenever you'd have a new baby a, a, you know the, your congressperson or your senator would send you one uh, and the other great source of infant advice believe it or not was the metropolitan life insurance company uh, when you well, bought insurance for your family they sent you lots and lots of baby books and they produced billions of them of health advice books and sent it off to families so today we kind of get that in through other social media than in the past, but a lot of it is the same idea. Simple messages, easy to follow, based on what we believe to be the latest science, which, as we know, is not always the correct science. Right, right. You know, one area I'm, I'm curious about, if you could talk a little bit about this, is, is that so much of the research that has been done on child development and on parental influence over children has to do with it has to do with moms and very little with dads. And I'm wondering if you noticed that and if you noticed a time when that was questioned. I think it begins to be questioned actually uh, in the post-World War II later baby boom period when we have a feminist movement that really says, well, what about the dads? Uh, But early on when we start teaching infant development, psychology, child theory, in our, college, in our schools and universities, we teach it to girls in home economics. Um, we teach it in times it through Girl Scouts. We have an organization called Little Mothers League before that that tries to take low-income girls and teach them how to care for their siblings, which they might have to do while mom's out at work. And we kind of ignore the, the boys who need the training very young and the men and the fathers. Um, and so that will come later on in the 20th century. That doesn't mean the men aren't involved. I try and show in my book that even though moms kept the most of the baby books and recorded things, the dads were writing plenty of letters about their children's and babies' development. The moms were complaining, oh, but, you know, dad's always on the floor playing with the baby. He doesn't want to come to dinner. Uh, uh, so there's a lot of parental involvement, but it's not because we're educating fathers and working on fathers to understand infant development and to be involved in, in that. That's kind of a shame, but I think yeah. we're correcting that. I'm, I'm working on that one, yeah. It's, uh, yeah. So how, how has our understanding or changing understanding of, of babies and our importance to them and their importance to us, how has that affected the world that we live in? Well, you know, that is a really tough question. I think that we now understand that Babies don't have to be verbal to be learning and communicating with us, that their cries mean something, that they're looking at us means something. Um, so I think that, that that's how that, that's changed in a way. But I think there's still a lot of mystery about what goes on in, in infants as their brains are developing. And probably the best advice that, that people have always given and always practice is to just love your child and do your best by your child because you don't really know. You don't really know what are they thinking about, what do they want. You try and you, your best to see what they seem to be telling you and, and to respond to it. Yeah, but it's, it's, you're exactly right. We, we don't know where to go. So where, where do you think we do go from here? How do we continue to have a, a well-meaning and well-directed focus on babies because there's still plenty more to learn. There's still plenty more to learn. And, you know, I've often wondered and I've written about whether it's t- 
time to bring back the United States Children's Bureau, to have a federal agency that's dedicated to all infants and children, and that really helps to coordinate research about their needs, that really gets us to understand the disparities by race, by class, by gender, that we can address through social programs and good social policies, um, whether it's figuring out what should infant daycare look like in our economy and how we support workers and infants, or whether it's um, what kind of scientific study should we be investigating. Is it um, rare diseases or is it prematurity that's killing so many Americans? Um, we really kind of need a coordinated effort, I think, to think about infants and children. And I don't know if we're going to get there or not. I know that's not part of the new government proposal on the White House website. Um, but I don't think it's a bad idea to prioritize children in the 21st century, at the beginning decades of the yeah. 21st century, as we did at the beginning of the 20th century, because it certainly in the past has yielded a healthier, stronger society and healthier, happier families. Well, how do you keep politics out of it, though? Because that, that I think, that seems to be much more of a uniquely 21st century thing than a 20th century thing, because it sounds like people were going to the government for help, but now very few people would think of doing that. And, you know, so some of the research that comes out has a, a political tinge to it, and, and sometimes things are switched 180 degrees depending on on social objections to certain kinds of things. I remember you know, you, every once in a while you'll see a study that says that uh, babies who grow up with uh, going to, to daycare very early are more likely to become serial killers or something like that. And then, <laughs> and then you'll have women's groups will complain saying, you're saying that we're bad moms. And then you'll have another study that comes out that says you know, babies who stay at home with their moms are better off. And, and you know, how, how do you get the politics out? That's Right. How, you know, that is a question I think about a lot. How do we reach a consensus that I think we all want our, our, our youngest citizens, our future citizens, to grow up in the best possible way? And I think we might all agree that we have to look to good quality data that answers important questions that we ask. But where does that break down? It breaks down over funding. It breaks down over prioritizing other things. Um, boy, if I had the answer to getting past some of our political debates that, <laughs> that take us away from things I think everybody shares, um, I guess I'd run for office if I had that answer. <laughs> well, we'll have you on when you get your campaign slogans down. Janet yeah. <laughs> Golden. Janet Golden's the author of Babies Made Us Modern, How Infants Brought America into the 20th Century. Janet, thanks so much. Thank you. And a special shout out to the folks at Navy Federal Credit Union for supporting today's show. They've been proudly serving the Armed Forces, Department of Defense, veterans, and their families for more than 80 years. Federally insured by NCUA. Thanks for listening to Positive Parenting. You can get more information on today's show and what we're working on in the weeks ahead at MrDad.com. While you're there, visit the MrDad.com gift shop with everything you need to help you become the dad or mom you want to be. Positive Parenting is a production of the MrDad.com radio network. Now, go be a great parent.